uh, we continue, uh, we kind of, we got to a point and said, look, my goodness, what time it is last week and cut her off. And uh, some of you probably say, well, this ought to be a short one. You just had a third of that message. Well, I moved on. Okay. Uh, not because it's not important, but because what we're going to talk about in this next passage really is a, a, a uh, link, if you will, a, a similar thread that has been run through both last week and this week's uh, time in God's Word. So John chapter 6, we begin there in verse 41. Would you read with me? Therefore, the Jews were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. They were saying, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? Jesus answered and said to them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that One may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that comes down out of heaven. If anyone eats out of, uh, excuse me, if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true blood, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum, that is in Galilee, not in Jerusalem uh, where he had already been Uh, facing off some of the Jews, but these were of that same mindset. Now, as we begin, I want to, first of all, encourage you, if you got a note sheet, just to help out as we follow along together. First of all, the stubborn are ever grumbling. The stubborn, we're talking spiritually, the stubborn are ever grumbling. That's a a good description of them based on what Jesus says. And I always figure if he said it, it, we can rest in it, right? Uh, it's, it's true and without any uh, need for uh, further discussion. But he says, again, in verse 41, let's start there. Therefore, the Jews were grumbling. That is, the, the idea is that they were in a constant state of murmuring with indignity about every word that came out of his mouth. They had set themselves against him because of what he was proclaiming, because of who he claimed to be. 
And that's very important as we go through this passage. And, and all of John, because John is, as we said at the beginning, not helping us, the whole purpose of his gospel was to reveal to those listeners, readers, throughout the centuries to come, that Jesus is the Christ. That He is exactly the one, the, the Messiah. The, the word Messiah and Christ are very closely linked. Uh, almost synonymous in, in all of the context of Scripture, but it means the one sent, the one who had always been intended to be sent and now was sitting or, and standing before them and preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Now look with me again. He says, Therefore the Jews were grumbling about him. And one thing about stubborn folks, when they're spiritually stubborn, they stick their, their heels in the sand and they, they just find fault in everything you say. I mean, you can't say that, you know, the, the sky was pretty today. They said, no, it wasn't. You know, there was clouds over here. You know, they've got to find some contradictory statement to, to undermine what you're saying. And many times it has nothing to do with you. Now, if you've been uh, uh, caustic, if you've been kind of uh, strong-arming them and trying to convince them about what you believe as a Christian and you're not really giving them any grace, you're not really being winsome, you're just being very you know, bulldogmatic about every little thing, then, then folks are going to respond that way. But if you've been kind, if you've just said, Here, you know, here's what I believe. Had a friend sharing with me about his next-door neighbor, very nice couple, uh, but they are of a different belief and a different faith system, a works-based system, and and he was talking to this gentleman. The gentleman was basically giving him the old scales. You know, I'm going to make sure that uh, when I get to heaven, there won't be any doubt that there'll be a whole lot more weight on the side of the good deeds than there are on the, on the bad deeds. And that's, that's what's going to get me into heaven. And he said, you know, my friend was kind of leaning back a minute. And he said, well, uh, I understand. He said, but uh, there's just one problem with it. That's, that's not what the Bible says. <laughs> And he shared just briefly, and he could tell, not that the man was offended at the conversation, but the, but the, the idea that you can't work your way into heaven was, was disconcerting to him. It was troublesome, and it should be, friends. Let me just share with you. If you're sitting here tonight, and you believe in any shape, form, or fashion that you're going to be received at the, that last moment of this life, and that nanosecond you're standing before Jesus Christ, either as Savior and Lord welcoming you into His kingdom or as judge condemning you for your rejection of His gospel during this life. For it is appointed man wants to die and then the judgment. If, if you're in any way thinking that moment is going to be built on and decided upon how good you've been, how many good things you've done, how kind you've been to your neighbor, friends, let me share with you tonight the gospel that is by grace through faith alone in Christ alone. Because there is none of us who are worthy of heaven on our own. It is only because of that blood that we're going to talk about tonight that we are any of us able to even hope for heaven. But in Christ we have not only hope that is just a whim, but hope that is steadfast and is sure and our anchor holds within the veil. Uh, tonight we understand, first of all, again, that the stubborn are ever grumbling about the truth. They have their idea about what it is, and, and they do that a lot of times because they're in continual doubt. Look with me. They were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. 
they were saying, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from out of heaven? Well, their doubt is, bit, is based on the fact that they have erroneous information already. You see, they don't know his father. They know his stepfather. They know the surrogate that God gave responsibility to raise him from a human perspective alongside his mother Mary. But they don't know his father, and that's the very cause of this disagreement. This grumbling and murmuring and constant indignancy toward Christ was because they didn't know who he was. And they certainly didn't know his father, even though they claimed to know the Scriptures. Now look with me again. Not only because... Now, are they ever grumbling because of their, their own doubts, and, but also because they're just, they're just opposed to what he's saying? Look with me. How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? You, you did not. You're Joseph and Mary's boy. We've watched you grow up along with your uh, brothers and your sisters. And uh, you, we know it scripturally, we know that, that Mary was not the perennial virgin, okay? We know that because we are told she had other children. He had, he was the oldest, Christ was the firstborn of seven children out of that womb. She was not the co-redemptress and is not to this day the co-redemptress. She was a sinner in need of grace, just like every one of us. She was gifted, she was graced the opportunity. And what a wonderful grace it was to birth our Savior, yes, but she was not sinless herself. And you and I need to understand, when people deny the truth, a lot of times it's because they have assumed or they've been taught erroneous facts. I guess that's a contradiction of terms, but what they believe is not true. And therefore they're building a, a house of cards on quicksand. And you and I don't have to be mad about that. We don't have to be angry with them. We don't have to be uh, all out of sorts when they say those things. We just understand, hey, they, they don't know the truth. They are even, because of our spiritual sin state apart from Christ, they're blinded to the truth. So their denial is not simply that, that they don't, if we just tell them the truth, they're going to go, oh, well, oh, now I see. Their hearts and their spirits and the enemy who is always working around them is a sore loser. He doesn't want them to understand it. They are not, they're not bent to understand. You and I need to be very careful in our day and age. We've got a lot of people that think something like, well, if we just um, you know, put up a, 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 <laughs> let's put up three really large white crosses on the corner that it will draw people to church. Now, I understand people say, wait a minute, wait a minute, preacher. Didn't Jesus say, if I be lifted up, I'll draw them into myself? Yes, he did. And that is absolutely the truth. But that doesn't mean that he's talking about three metal crosses on the corner of our property. A lot of people say, if we were just here, people will come. People will seek the truth, seek the, what's right. They'll seek the Lord. No, they don't. No, they don't. Men, as we've already learned in John's gospel, Stay away from the light because they do not want their evil deeds to be revealed. Men and women apart from Christ liked it dark spiritually. They're not interested in the facts. They're not interested in the truth apart from the wonderful working of the Holy Spirit to soften their hearts, to cause circumstances, 
to, con- to confront that, yes, truth breaks sometimes. Uh, well, the hammer of truth just continues to beat on their heart. The, the very Lord Jesus himself, truth is knocking at that heart's door. Circumstances change in their lives and they become open. But that's the work of the Holy Spirit, not their innate bent toward the truth. Now look with me again. These, these murmurers, these, these stubborn, spiritually stubborn folks are always grumbling, one, because of their own doubts and what they're, what they're hearing. They can't believe it because they've already got a preconceived uh, way of looking at the world and spiritual things. Their own denial of the truth that's right before them. And then also, they're ever grumbling because, look with me in verse 43, their characteristic disagreement. They're just, they're just by nature, murmurers. Jesus answered and said to them, Do not grumble, do not murmur among yourselves. Don't keep thinking, well, everybody I talk to thinks the way I do. Everybody agrees. This Jesus character, he is, he is a case. And I can't believe what he's saying. Does, does he not know that we're the children of Abraham? That we have Moses? That we have the Torah? That we have the law? Does he not know? (laughs) It's constant. Every time Jesus would do something, he was accused of doing miracles by the power of Beelzebub. He had to confront that issue. A house divided cannot stand. Why would Satan be doing miracles that thwarted or foiled his work? That's That's not even logical, but that's what people believe about Jesus, that he's just one more spiritual choice and they're not, none of those are any uh, less than or greater than him. He's just one among many. Oh, my friends, people are just characteristically resistant and disagreeable to the gospel apart from the grace and mercy that he shows in letting us understand and drawing us. He woos us. He, he wants us. Even the Father who sent the Son did it not because He was angry with us, but because He saw us in our lost state and all His heart, all of history pointed toward the provision of a remedy for our sin. God would that all men should be saved. That's why He gave the greatest gift imaginable for our redemption. And so we see, first of all, in this passage, that as they, their, their doubts, their denial, just a characteristic disagreement. Look at me again, verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Now, I know. Some of your ears just perked up. You know, uh-oh, what's he going to do with this? Well, I'm going to be as faithful I can, as I possibly can to the text. That's what we're called to do. You know, if, if we're not that, then we need to close up shop and go home and, and not try this anymore. But the reality is, in this passage, we first of all see that, again, they believe, listen to me, as Jews, that they were already accepted by God because they had a a bloodline received from their their, 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 the founding of their uh, whole ethnic and and biological descent in Abraham. And so they said, hey, we're children of Abraham. We, we, you know, look again in verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Wait a minute, we're already in. We don't need to be drawn about anything. Wait, wait, wait. 
Well, people, then people, this side of the cross, this side of the gospel, begin to ask questions like, well, does, you know, that, that's, uh, that's perhaps talking about the fact that God sovereignly chooses who's saved and who's not going to be saved. Let me just share with you. Don't go there. Don't go there. You cannot read Scripture and testify that God has, prior to anyone having any life breathed into them, born of woman, you cannot go to Scripture and say God chooses some to be saved and some to be lost. Now what you do find is that God foreknows foreknowledge. He knows who's going to be. I get that. And being a Baptist, I want to, I want to like understand. We want to preach the whole counsel of God. Yes, God is sovereign and God knows. But God who is above time, apart from time, separate from time, look down through time that He created for you and I to be able to experience things sequentially. Wouldn't you like to experience all your life in one moment? Just, I mean, from the moment you cried your first breath out of your mama's womb until the day you died, wouldn't you like to see that all at once? Oh, yeah, I'd love to see what I, what's coming. Oh, you wouldn't. No, you wouldn't. I know some of you are, <laughs> you're, um, how to say, you're a little further along on the journey than I am, but I'm even smart enough to know I don't want to see. I don't want to see everything that's coming from here until the moment I see Jesus. I want to see Him. That'd be awesome. That'd be wonderful. But I don't want to see all of my life. I, boy, it'd scare me to death. I'd be, I'd be in a puddle in a fetal position over here, you know, crying my eyes out. I couldn't handle it. And neither could you. But let me just share with you. God knew before he ever breathed life into Adam what was going to happen in the garden. It says that before the foundation of the world, the scripture tells us the lamb was slain. Did he want Adam and Eve to sin? Absolutely not. He understood he understood what was going to happen and he had already provided in his heart of hearts in the wisdom and the counsel of the triune God there was complete and utter eternal agreement about how that sin issue was going to be resolved and God knew what was going to be needed. But also, when he looked at that situation he said, anyone and everyone I want all the scriptures in the New Testament tell us God would that all men should be saved. God desires our salvation, but our sinful hearts are no small thing. Several years ago, before I came on staff here at Bellevue, I was bivocational pastor. I was serving a small church out in Fayette County and teaching full-time at Briarcrest High School in their Bible department. And every year, some folks have already heard this, but it'll bear repeating. Every year I went through uh, a couple of, uh, one of my classes we would do uh, in the junior senior level, it was a class where we did the the basics of the faith the first semester, and then world religions, uh, the occult, and pseudo Christian cults in the spring, kind to say, okay, here's what we believe, here's the real thing. Kind of like the Secret Service trains its uh, agents to recognize real currency, so then whenever they're uh, given a false piece of currency, they immediately recognize it, not for what it looks like, but for what it doesn't look like. It doesn't look like the real. And so we would say, here's the real, here's what we believe as Christians, and here's the false. Here's how to recognize the false because you already know the real. And so that meant that every fall semester there would be a week where we would have 
a, the doctrine of sin. Now, here I was, 34, 35, 36-year-old pastor, been in ministry at that point for 21, 22 years. Most from teenagers on, teenage on, I'd been in ministry, and most of that had been in serving churches. And I had 15, 16, and 17-year-olds that thought everything under the sun was brand new with them. You've seen the title. Oh, wow. We've got a question, Dr. Crouch. <laughs> like that was the first question ever asked, you know, about the things of God. But every, we'd go through every doctrine, doctrine of man, doctrine of God, doctrine of the Bible, and we got to doctrine of the sin. Doctrine of sin was just, I, now I didn't have to go, now what do I believe about sin so I can teach these kids? I'd been preaching and teaching this stuff for a while. I got my notes together and I'd preach and teach and we'd discuss and give time. And these kids were, they weren't, they weren't dull knives, they were sharp. And they'd ask questions. But you know what did happen during those weeks? Every time I would preach, and this would be like three or four classes, so most of my prep was in that one lesson. I'd, I'd have to teach it, not different truth, but I'd have to learn how am I communicating? How am I, what, what illustrations, what, what, how do I word this in a way that takes, as Dr. Rogers used to say, put the cookies on the bottom shelf so everybody can get to them. What can, how can I not undermine the, 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 the depth and breadth of the doctrine, but help them understand? And I'm telling you, more happened in my heart in those days when I would get to that doctrine of sin. You see, I believe that what God was teaching me as a young pastor, even in those days, was this. Mike, sin is far deeper, far broader, far wider, and far, far more consequential than you've ever known. You see... The Jews coming to Jesus, and even the Jewish people today, will tell you we're God's children. Heaven's a done deal for us. We're, we're born into it. And Jesus says, wait a minute, look with me again. Verse 44, no one can come to me. No one can come to the one who is that bread come down from out of heaven unless the Father draws him. Now, the Father's drawing him. But you have to, he, he's wooing you. He's not pulling you by chains. God doesn't, for, listen, God does not force anyone to accept him. You won't see anybody kicking and screaming their way into heaven if you arrive before the rest of us, okay? If you're not willing, you're not drawn. If, you're, if you've responded to Christ, it's because you've, you've willingly given your heart to Christ. You've made that decision. You've trusted him. And he yes, he's drawing. Yes, he's affording the opportunity. Yes, he wants to, all men to be saved. But you and I have to understand, it's not that God is unwilling to save. It's that we're unwilling to be saved. And so when you're witnessing to someone, you say, Mike, you're talking to the Wednesday night crowd. <laughs> you know, look, we're, 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 don't get too content. You say, why? Because you and I are not the end of the lesson. We are to learn to understand the darkness of men's souls, the desperation that sin causes, the, 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 the delusion that sin is, so that when we're talking to people, we don't do it. 
as if we're, we're going to win this boxing match with this person. No, we're, we're offering the greatest invitation, the greatest gift that's ever been offered to mankind. And if you want somebody to open your gift, you don't say, here, and shove it in their face. They go, wait, wait, what's that all about? What we do is we say, hey, this, I want to tell you, you're going to really enjoy this. I know that things aren't always perfect, but this, this gift that I received once and I just have to pass it on to you really, really is the greatest gift I've ever received. And it's changed my life. It's changing my life still. And I'm not, I'm not saying that, that everything I do, do or say or think right now is perfect, but, but I'm telling you, this changed everything at a core level. And when we offer it, they're going like, well, man, I... I think I might like something like that too. And so they're willing to listen to us. But you understand, and I need to understand, that when people are in sin, they are often, in fact, they are ever in some way or another grumbling. They're grumbling all the time. They're murmuring just like these Jews were. They're denying. They're doubtful. They're disagreeable. They're all those things that you and I have listed and walked through. Now look at me again. In verse 44, I will raise him up on the last day. Now, he's going to repeat this before the end of the text tonight. But the reality is that this is, again, part of the plan. He's not only going to draw us unto himself and give us life now, but they can be assured that those who come to him, those who hearing and responding to the drawing, the wooing, the invitation of God through his son, Jesus Christ, when they, like you and I, respond, those folks can be assured that not just for a moment, but all the way into eternity, Christ is overseeing this transformation that begins when we receive that gift. I'll raise him up at the last day. He that began a good work in you will complete it. He'll finish it. God is not just a good starter. He's a good finisher. And you and I need to understand that what he begins in the human heart, as feeble as our faith may be, like a mustard seed in its, in its size, continues to grow by the grace and mercy of God throughout our lives. And in that last day, because our salvation never did depend on our goodness when it began, when it continues, or when it's completed in eternity before him. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to share with you, when Jesus said, in that last day I will raise him up, it wasn't just I hope to or I plan to, or if everything goes well, I'm going to. He said, I will raise him up at the last day. That's the kind of opportunity that these, these stubborn unbelievers had before them. You see, sometimes we think, well, maybe, maybe God doesn't give everybody opportunity. Again, those sharp Briarcrest students, they ask a question, and I think I really do think some of them thought it was the first time anybody thought, well, what about the fella that's in the deepest, darkest part of Africa? Like Africa didn't have, you know, <laughs> like, guys, 
This is 2007. This is, this is 2005. 2000. They have elected. You know, they've seen white men now. You know, it's, it's, it's just kind of like they were thinking like no communication, no effort to reach a whole continent had ever, been, had ever been made. But yes, there's been hundreds and hundreds and thousands of missionaries and gospel ministries in that continent. But, but that's just all they could think of because their, their minds were just so, so small about what God was able to do. And I said, what about that person? And they said, hey, listen, I want you, I want you to uh, tell me, what, what are you thinking, guys? And they, they'd say, what if they've never heard about Jesus? What if they die and they've never heard the gospel? You, you or somebody like you, Brother Mike, or, or Dr. Krauss, whatever they call me over there, they say, Dr. Krauss, what if you, you never or anybody like you ever shared the gospel with them? And they die. What happens to them? I said, uh, well, if they've never trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior, they die and go into an eternity without Him. And, you, and just like some of you right now, they looked at each other when I said that. As if God was sudden, that I was making God a, 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 a harsh and over, just a, just a, a brute and then I'd step back and I'd say, now listen to me, gentlemen and ladies. What I'm telling you is that God is desiring all men to be saved. Yeah, but you said, now listen to me, finish. I said, as students, I don't know what, how much you've grappled with. Some of you may have grappled with it. Some of you are being quiet. Maybe you, you've already settled this in your mind. But let me tell you what happens. A lost man in any continent, in any spiritually destitute situation, who desires, who the Spirit of God has been working on and drawing, and, and they respond to that drawing, they will find whatever light God has given them at that moment. And when they respond to that light in a positive sense, they take a step forward. And guess what happens then? God, because He sees their desire and He wants them to be saved Himself, they, He gives them more light and they'll take another step. And then when they respond to that second uh, uh, influx, if you will, of light, they continue to get light and more light and more light. And I said, listen, here's what's going to happen. If they continue to respond to the light they are being given, no matter if they're in a penthouse in New York City or, yes, in the back... Uh, waters of a swamp in some distant land where no communication, no electricity has ever been run. No matter what you can compare, whatever extreme ends of the spectrum you can, can create, if that person responds to the Lord Jesus Christ and the light that he gives them, he's going to continue to give that light until the gospel is the light they're given. They will, if it means dropping a missionary by parachute right in the middle of their village or right on the top of their penthouse to tell them about Jesus, if that's what it's requiring because they are responding faithfully to the light they are being given, then God is faithful to give them more light. They said, well, that's, that's good, but what if that doesn't happen? It doesn't happen because men don't desire light. Men love darkness. When Dr. Gray Allison and Dr. Bud Bickers and Dr. Don Donovan and, and uh, well, Dr. Corky Ferris were all my professors over at Mid-America. It was still downtown at the old Jewish synagogue and school. 
I can, t- I can still hear those men in one way or another telling me, yes, yes, that's true. You and I need to be people who understand that everyone is without excuse before a holy God. That's true, but you and I, who have the light, who have the truth, are also responsible to share the light. I want to ask you tonight, I, this isn't planned, but I just want to, I want to ask you, just where you're sitting, I'm not going to ask you to stand up, raise your hand, roll down the aisle, nothing like that, okay, nothing crazy. But I want to ask you, where you live, do you know the spiritual condition of the people around you closest? If you do, praise the Lord. If you don't, why not? Maybe that's your Easter invitation. Maybe after Sunday afternoons, knocking on the doors of the the houses and the neighborhoods right here around Bellevue, maybe you take one or two of those invite cards or maybe a bag if if it would help, and you take that and you say, neighbor, I, I should have done this a long time ago. But I just want to know, I want, excuse me, I want you to know that I care about you and I'm concerned and I pray for you and your family. Is there anything specific I can pray for you? And then give them not only the opportunity to respond, but then pray for them and then say, now, if you don't mind, I'd like to invite you to Bellevue. We're having four different Easter services across Easter weekend. This com- it'll be this coming weekend at that point. Now, friends, this is not a staff advertisement to come to Sunday afternoon. This is a Baptist preacher asking believers to have the heart of God for those closest to you. You remember the old saying that charity shines brightest at home? What about the people around your home? Do they know that your great love is Jesus Christ? And it would, it would thrill you beyond anything else they might do in all of your relationship if they'd come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior as well. Listen to me. Stubborn people are ever grumbling, even when the light is right before them. But that doesn't discourage God. It doesn't discourage Jesus Christ. And it certainly shouldn't discourage us this afternoon. Look with me again. As we read this passage, verse John chapter 6, well, I know John's in this Bible, I saw it this afternoon. Verse 45 goes on. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Yes. And he, let, me, let me just read verse 46 as well. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who comes from, who is from God. He has seen the Father. Now, what Jesus in these two verses is saying 
is that even though there is this, this penchant away from the gospel, stubborn hearts, sin-soaked hearts are just always grumbling and murmuring, and whether it's a, whether it's a sincere disagreement with what we're saying or whether it's just, hey, you know, everybody else seems to be upset, I'll be upset too, or whether it's just the fact that even unrecognizable, their own hearts are just bent away from the light of Christ. He says, listen, in contrast to what you think, it is written in the prophets and they shall be taught of God. That is, God is the one who, who convinces us that where we're headed and what we hold to is not working. I'm not a big afternoon TV fan, never have been, but, I, but one day I was out of my normal schedule several years ago, and I just happened to sit down after working out in the yard, and this guy came on, and I didn't, I'd never seen him. Bald-headed guy with mustache, big, tall guy, and his name was Dr. Phil. Y'all, if didn't know didn't know him then, don't know a whole lot about him now, but he but he kept asking. It was kind of an audience deal. And when I sat down, I thought, "Well, this is curious. What what's this all about?" But I remember him saying, after hearing somebody tell about this awful situation they were dealing with, he said, "Now, now how's that working out for you?" And apparently, that became kind of a phrase that he used quite often. Now, now, how's that working out for you? And what he's saying is, you men have been seeking to know the Scriptures, and the Scriptures are the one that teach of me, but, but God uses the Scriptures to point toward me, and you're not willing to receive me. So what is it that you're learning? How's that study that you've been doing, how's that working out? Because you don't seem to have any peace and you certainly don't have any love or joy or mercy or grace for others. So how's that working out for you? And, and tonight I want to just challenge you. When you and I begin to hear the Word of God preached, we, and, and especially when it's done well and faithful to the text, we need to be very careful that we don't like, whoa, 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 that's, that's not what I'm used to or that, that's not what I'm comfortable with. What we need to say is, listen, that's, that's God's word. That's God's heart for me. He wants me to know this. So what am I supposed to get in that moment? What, it, what is that actually saying? What is it saying the, when the writer put ink to paper? What did it mean then? And how does it apply to me? And, and how am I going to respond to that? That's how we ought to be. But, but our stubborn, sinful hearts are often saying, oh, don't do that. Don't do that. Scripture goes on in this passage where Jesus has talked about the stubborn nature of a, a denying, doubting, disagreeable heart. But then he begins, look with me in verse 40, uh, 47. He begins to talk about the fact that in contrast to these stubborn sinners, the Savior, the Savior is eternally gracious. Second point of our lesson tonight, the, the Savior is eternally gracious. Look at me in verse 47. Truly I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. 
I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And I want to stop there just for a moment because the last part of that verse is significant in a, in a different way. Sometimes we read so quickly that we miss it, but there's a kind of a turn of thought, an additional thought that Jesus adds there. So I'm going to stop for just a moment. First of all, when you look at sinful, stubborn men and women's hearts across the ages, and then you, you put up against that a Savior, the light of the world, the bread of life, in comparison to them, I think you have to, to look and say, well, what, what does he bring to the table, literally, that's different? Well, verse 47, I say to ye, you, he who believes has eternal life. What is he saying? He who believes in me. No one else in all of Christian history, Judeo-Christian history, no one in the Old Testament had ever said before a crowd of listening uh, religious curious people in any context, whether Jew or Gentile, had ever said, if you believe in me. There was never that kind of claim. And yet Jesus made that very claim clearly right here. Why? Because he could. He was not simply a prophet likened to Moses. He was the Christ. He wasn't just a, a, a king like David. He's Christ. The one sin. He wasn't just a, 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 a healer or a kingmaker like Samuel. He was the Christ. He wasn't the father of three different uh, religions like Abraham. He's the Christ. The one through whom and by, and by whom the faithful of the Old Testament would be saved as they look forward to him and we look back to him. He's the Christ, the one sent for the salvation of all men. No one had ever made a claim like that. It's unprecedented. Also, it's unparalleled. Look with me again in verse 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. Nobody had ever made that promise. No one could ever have made that promise before or since Christ. Why? Because he alone can offer eternal life. So when you look at these stubborn, sinful people who are always murmuring and always just trying to undermine what God is doing and, and run from the light and, and oftentimes uh, cover the light so that others can't. They're deceived and deceiving. He says, he who believes has, not will have, but has eternal life. Why? Because they have me. You take the bread of life, you receive what is that life. Jesus Christ, he's the one who is Eternal life, it's an unparalleled claim because no one else could offer that kind of joyful opportunity, that kind of hope. No one else could offer the life, the eternal life, now and forevermore that Jesus could. Third, verse 48, I am the bread of life. Again, <laughs> They were people who, who claimed an affinity for Moses, a, a heritage from Abraham. Uh, they, they felt just because they were alive and breathing as children of Jews that they were, they were special, that, that they were untouchable spiritually. But he says, wait a minute. Just to clarify, you keep denying who I am. 
You keep arguing with every claim that I make. You can't disprove it. You just don't want to believe it. You're turning a blind eye to the truth standing before you. Oh, by the way, let me just put it in a way that you who love the Old Testament can understand. I am the bread of life. Those listening in that moment had no doubt whether they were a scholarly Jew or just a a fisherman or a common housewife of the day. None of them had any doubt what he was saying. He was claiming to be God, a very God. I am the one who is the bread of life. You and I need to understand today People do not disbelieve the gospel because they have better ideas. They have a better philosophy. They have a better approach to to spiritual matters. It's because they cannot receive what I am has given them, has offered to them, has afforded them. It's not that they can't receive, it's that they won't receive. And he stands and saying, listen, I don't want to make it anything complicated. I'm not trying to put it up on a a high pedestal where only a few can attain to eternal life. I am the bread of life right here. And whoever receives me receives eternal life. Because I am that very sustenance, that very bread of life. We go on. Jesus, again, eternally gracious, even in the face of all this opposition, He doesn't get angry. He doesn't get confrontational. He just continues to to proclaim the truth before them. He says in verse 49, Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. You want to lift this up that that Moses provided, uh, as we talked about last week, Moses provided bread for those 40 years of the wilderness testing and travel. Guess what? That was only, that was, yes, a divine grace. It was a wonderful gift that God gave you. Every day they had manna eat for 40 years. Millions of Jewish sojourners were filled daily by the hand of God because God was giving them generously what they needed. But that was physical food. There was nothing, there was nothing saving. Uh, picturing, yes, the salvation, uh, picturing the, the, the goodness of God, yes, but it did not in itself save them. But the one who is standing before them, he, if we take him as our all in all, if he becomes the source of our life, if we trust him and fully consume him in the spiritual sense, we have not only life today, but life eternal that goes on and on and on Not just like it's always been, but a new, qualitatively better kind of life than we could ever know apart from Him. Scripture goes on to say, look with me again in verse 50 and following. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever Again, he's not mincing words. He's not, he's not trying to say there's any kind of, of uh, 
alternate that's, that's, that you can choose. He's saying, listen, this is, this is what God is doing. God is providing the one source of life, setting before you. It's as if he was spreading a table and providing bread for all who would sit down. But you have to receive it. It's offered, but you have to receive it. And if you do, you, you consume it, you take it in. Like bread that is eaten on a daily basis. Like the food we take in. We take in Christ in the sense that, that we consume Him spiritually, not physically. You know, this was one of the early church's uh, passages where people would come to them, the, the naysayers, the pagans around them, and say, you're, you're, you're not only not worshiping Caesar, you're cannibals. You talk about eating the blood and the body of your, your Savior. That, that's, that's beyond the pale. That's not what they were saying. That's not what they're praying. And let me share with you, this is not Jesus saying you have to take the Lord's Supper to be saved and continue to be saved. That's not what this passage is talking about. Are there allusions to that? Are there some connections? There are some, yes, some theological connections. But what he's talking about is himself. We take him on as our spiritual life. We trust him and him alone. And as such, we receive what only he can afford. And then finally, as I said a moment ago, the last part of verse 51, really, it, it, you can see by their reaction that it, there's more to it than just a subtle change. It's a, it's a completely new ripple in this, this truth that he's presenting, and they're, they're stumbling over it just after this. But verse 51 finishes, And the bread also which I give for the life of the world is my flesh. And what he's saying is he's, he's foreshadowing that I am going to physically die. I'm going to offer up my flesh so that you can live spiritually. The Son of God, the Son of Man, fully God, fully man at the same time, is going to once and for all die for the sins of men. And those that receive Him are going to be saved forevermore because he, His body was broken. By His stripes we are healed. That's what He's talking And they look at it, mean, and you can see it in verse 52. Then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? How, how is that? Again, they're thinking on a very physical, very very uh, concrete level instead of seeing the spiritual truth but find what he's saying. Verse 53, very quickly, Truly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up again on the last day. Again, as we, as we draw to the end of this passage in chapter 6, I want, to, I want to just be very clear. These are those who have eternal life. When we take on in, in full faith, Lord, I consume as if I were physically eating, but not physically, but spiritually I consume. I take in everything that you are offering to me. And I continue to dwell and to live and have all that I need because of that substance that you provide through your eternal life now in me. I look to you for every need, not just for that moment of salvation, but every need that stretches out beyond that. I trust you for every moment of life from here and throughout eternity. Now look with me again. Verse 54, or excuse me, Verse 55, for my flesh is true, blood, uh, is true food and my blood is true drink. 
He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me. How do we know if a person is truly received, consumed, if you will, spiritually, the life of Christ? Because they continue to abide in Him. That's what He's saying. If 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 you've truly received me, if you've taken on my life into your own, guess what's going to happen? Your life is going to be marked by an abiding in me. Your life is not going to still be living out on your own, doing your own thing, in your own power, in your own will. Your heart, and it's going to be an obvious thing, not only to you, but to those around you, your heart is to abide in Him. Why? Because when we take His life in us, not only is He now in us, but we are in Him. And we have everything we need in Christ. Let's pray as we close out. Father, thank You for the Word of God. Thank You for the fact that that Your Word continues to call us to, to Yourself first. To trust you and you alone for our salvation. To say, Lord, what, what all that you have for me, I, I receive it by faith. And Lord, I, I not only receive it, but I want it to take over my life. I want you to dwell in me from this moment forward. And Lord, being indwelt by you means that I now am in you as well. That from the moment I receive you, I no longer am my own. I'm no longer bent on my own agenda. I'm no longer led by my own passions. I'm now, receive, having received you, I now have a heart that's more and more growing, abiding in you. I grow to think like you, to love like you, to respond like you, to work as unto you. All that I do is just simply a love response in you. That's what, that's what Christianity is, Father. Not that any of us do it perfectly, but, but Father, we, we look to you to continue to live your life through us. And so as we go from this place tonight, I pray that you would indeed help us not only to receive fully the Lord Jesus Christ, that bread of life, but having received you, Father, fully, you might Live out your life through us. When all the world clamors for something different or something radical or something new, Father, let us be people who continue to rejoice in the old, old story of Jesus Christ and His love for us. Father, I pray for each and every one of these folks that are here tonight. Father, we pray right now as well that you would, as it's already been mentioned, we pray for those families in the Nashville area that tragically lost loved ones in that shooting. Father, we also pray for our nation. Father, we understand that there was a very sin-soaked and confused and uh, just horrific. Well, I'm at a loss for words. The individual that committed that crime was, was obviously overwhelmed by the sin-soaked life 
of this world and the, and the, what the society that we have uh, now allowed to, to exist. And so, Father, I, I pray that you would take what's happened there in Nashville and call us as a nation to our knees. That you'd help us understand that how, how can the righteous stand when the foundations be destroyed? So, Father, I pray that whether it's that or whether it's the front door conversations as we knock on doors this week and we invite our coworkers and our friends and others, neighbors over the next 10 days to our Easter services, Father, I pray that, that our hearts would be in tune with what you are calling us to. That we would not only abide in you, but we would act as you would act. That we would do what Jesus would do in these tumultuous and yet incredibly opportune moments that we live in. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.